chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We have our missionaries back from South Africa. And they will be sharing with us tonight about what God is doing with the Swana people and with the church we've partnered with there. So I would love for you to come out tonight and hear uh, what they have to say and see pictures and, and uh, pray, continue to pray how our church will participate in the Great Commission in South Africa. So grateful uh, for those four that went. If you would, look with me in Luke 18, starting in verse 18. It says, A ruler asked him, that is Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for in your providence, inspiring this text by your spirit, provoking Luke to write this account. And we believe that this is as Important today as it was in the first century. We pray you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are pliable to the truth of this text. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Several weeks ago, uh, an article was published titled, Nine Reasons Why You Don't Want to Be Rich. Well, the title of the article interested me. So I read it and I just can't get that time back. That's the problem. It was not a great article. (laughs) But just a few of those nine reasons that you don't want to be rich. First of all, if you're rich, you have bigger income tax bills. That's a problem to have, huh? Secondly, when you are rich, there is a tendency towards a trouble with lawsuits and blackmail from your help. Do you know that that is a trend that maids and, and butlers and chauffeurs tend to blackmail and, and sue their rich clients? Third, there's the professional fees. You have to pay agents and managers and publicists and attorneys. And then there are those complex and expensive security systems you have to purchase because people tend to want to break into your estate when you're wealthy. Then you even have to purchase and buy bodyguards or at least rent bodyguards for that matter. Well, as I read this article, 
I thought there's at least a couple of problems with this article. First of all, it ignores the fact that in comparison to the world and in comparison to history for that matter, it ignores the fact that for us Americans, virtually all of us are rich. Not just those who own private jets. All of us are rich. Consider this. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, the poverty line for someone in the United States in the year 2010 was someone who lives on $10,840 per year. That's considered the poverty line in the United States. $10,840 a year. But someone who makes that much money, that is someone who's at that line, that poverty line, that would put you at the top 14% of the global income distribution in that same year. You say, well, it's cheaper to live in other places in the world. And it's not. I've been to two third world countries this year, Zambia and Haiti. The groceries cost the same. Houses cost the same, okay? Um, fuel costs the same. Cars cost the same. In fact, there are some one billion people in the world today who live on less than one dollar per day. So what that means is that we're all rich. In fact, the poorest among us, when you consider the the conveniences that we have in America in the 21st century, you are more wealthy than any king or Caesar in the first century. And so this article failed to recognize the fact that we are all rich, not just those who own mansions. But there was a second problem with this article as I read it as well. It gave nine reasons why you don't want to be rich, but it did not give the most important reason why you may not want to be rich. The most important reason why you may not want to be rich is that if you're rich, it's hard to go to heaven. It's very hard to go to heaven if you're rich. Now, why is that? Well, riches tend to incline us to pride and self-indulgence and self-help. Self-security, love for the world. And when these things are unrepentant of in our lives, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is teaching us in this very important passage. Now, at this point, he's nearing his end of the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. In just a few weeks, he's going to die on a cross, okay? And so his, his teachings are getting really intense at this point. And Luke is going to recount an encounter that Jesus has with a very humble, in one sense, religious, sincere, and sensitive, and moral man. Now this encounter follows two important stories that help us understand this story. You remember two weeks ago, we looked at the parable 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee entered the temple and he thanked the Lord that he was not like all these sinners, but he was a righteous man. He was a, an ethical man, an upstanding man. The tax collector comes in, he can't even look up and all he can cry is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus shockingly says, this is the one who went justified before God. And then last week, we see the, the parents bringing the infants to Jesus. The disciples rebuke them and Jesus says, do not forbid them to come to me for such is the kingdom of God. And we saw that what does an infant have to bring to the equation? Nothing but desperation and dependency. Okay? So those two uh, narratives are important to understanding our present narrative where a man comes up to Jesus. And that is where we pick up in verse 18. And it says a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. That tells us it's quite important. Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. In Matthew's account, chapter 19 of Matthew, he tells us that he was a young man. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us he was a rich man. And in Luke's account, we see that he was a ruler. And so when you have a composite picture of this man, we see that he was a rich, young ruler. Now, we don't know what kind of ruler he was. Some believe he was just some kind of magistrate, all right? Others believe he was some kind of religious ruler. The text doesn't tell us. But the most important thing we're going to learn about him, he was captive to self-rule. He was under the dominion of self-rule. And yet at face value, this rich young ruler comes reverently to Jesus. And I believe that this is sincerity. In fact, in Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, it says he came and he knelt before Jesus. It's a posture of worship. Outwardly it appears that this man is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the text doesn't tell us what provoked this rich young ruler to come to Jesus and ask him about eternal life. But we do know this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What does that mean? That means that all of us, unless our consciences have been seared by sin and secularism, all of us has a, have a sense of the afterlife. God has set eternity in our hearts. So we know there is something beyond the grave. It's something we cannot get away from because God has placed it there. And the only ones who don't ask that question are those who have their consciences seared. And so this man comes and he has that question on his heart. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know he is a young man, but he's a rich man and he's a ruler. And so this man has obviously succeeded in his professional life. You wouldn't be promoted to a position of ruler at a young age. And you wouldn't be rich at a young age unless you were good at what you do. And so maybe he thought that 
the same kind of prowess that I have shown in my professional life can be shown in my religious life in order to earn heaven. And of course, this was also a typical Jewish conviction. We saw that in uh, earlier in the parable of the Pharisee who believed that God would be impressed with his behavior, that God would be impressed with his ethical standing, comparing him with other men. In fact, this is the identical question, the very question that we saw several months ago in chapter 10. When the lawyer comes to Jesus, now this lawyer was coming to test Jesus. He wasn't sincere. But it says, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this reveals the common understanding. Common with men, that behavior is the ultimate requirement of religion. That somehow God is going to be impressed with those who behave really well. Those who are really committed to religious things. Well, note with me in verse 19, Jesus' response to this man. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some have used this to prove that Jesus did not see himself as the Son of God. They have taken this verse to to serve as their proof text that Jesus never claimed to be deity. Well, that's not what that is saying at all. In fact, Peter will later tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus is good and he is God. Now, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not denying his deity. But he knows this man's heart. And he knows that this man is not coming to him as the Son of God. He knows this man sees him merely as a human teacher. And so Jesus is straightening out this man's theology and anthropology in one statement. He is straightening out this man's view of God and his view of man in one statement. And he says to this man, only God is good. He defines goodness. He is the standard of goodness. And because he's the standard of goodness, man is not good. Okay? Man is utterly fallen and falls short. That's what he's telling this man. But because the rich young ruler didn't understand this, he believed he could do something in order to be saved. What must I do? And Jesus, knowing this, takes him to the law. Because if you want to be saved by doing, you must keep every single one of the laws. As Paul writes in Galatians 3 verse 12, the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You know what Paul is saying there? He's agreeing with Jesus. If you're going to walk according to the law in order to earn favor with God, that's not a life of faith. But if you're going to live by the law, you must do the law. And you must keep the law perfectly. And that's what he's telling this man. Well, notice in verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. 
Do not commit adultery. Of course, we know that's in the second table of the Ten Commandments. The the first table is our duty to God. Commandments 1 to 4. The second table is our duty to our fellow men. Commandments 5 to 10. And so he says, do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. He says, do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. Do not steal. That's the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. And honor your father and mother. That is the fifth commandment. Now, Luke doesn't tell us and Jesus doesn't tell us here why he gives the commandments in this order. I don't think that's what's important. But what he is doing here is he is using the law to expose the true state of this man's soul. That's the purpose of the law. The law was not given so that we could be saved in the sense of obedience and adherence to the law. The law was given to expose our need for a Savior. Now, it's a similar response to the the lawyer in chapter 10. When the lawyer says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. When you combine those two commandments, it says, Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here, he appeals to the second table of the Ten Commandments. Now, again, it doesn't tell us why he doesn't quote the first commandments. But if you fail to obey the second table of the Ten Commandments, that reflects the fact that you have disobeyed the first table of the Ten Commandments, and in particular, the first commandment. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And every time we sin... We are violating the first commandment. There is something in our life that is controlling our heart that is not God. And so if you break the last table, the second table of the Ten Commandments, it reveals the fact that you've already broken the first table. And there's another thing we know why Jesus is using the law here. The law was intended to show our sin. You know, Paul writes about that in Romans 3. Y'all been looking at that on Wednesday nights. In Romans 3, 19, Paul says that now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who are under the law? Everybody. Every single human who's ever lived on the face of the earth. That the, every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. In fact, Jesus has already said in John chapter 7, to the most committed law keepers in the history of the world, none of you keep the law. John 7 verse 19. It's impossible to keep the law. And he tells the disciples what we saw in chapter 11, he called them evil. He called his disciples evil. Why would he say that? Because his standard is the character of God. His standard is the law of God. 
And in comparison to the character of God and the law of God, all of us will be deemed evil before God. In other words, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us. And are under the wrath of God. With no hope based on our own obedience. That's what Jesus is trying to show the rich young ruler. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us here at Fisherville in the 21st century as well. Jesus has come to solve the problem of our sin. Okay? He has come to deal with God's wrath on our sin. But he first has to show us that we're naked of all virtue. So that we will flee to him and be clothed by him. That's what Jesus is doing with this man. Notice in verse 21. The man here doesn't get it. And he says, all these I have kept from my youth. All those commandments I have kept from my youth. Now, is it even possible that this is true? Is it possible? Maybe at one level. Maybe at one level it's very possible that this is true. Likely there was no external behavior in this man that contradicted or conflicted with the law of God. But what about his heart? What about his soul? You see, the problem with committed law keepers, that is, those who are going to bank on the fact that God is going to honor their obedience in the end. The problem with committed law keepers then and committed law keepers now is the focus on externals alone. That's a big problem. You know, if you remember back in chapter 11... When the Pharisee invited Jesus for dinner, it's probably the last invitation he ever gave Jesus. Because Jesus is there as a, as a guest, and here's what he tells the man in chapter 39. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. What is he saying there? He's saying, you guys are really polished and clean on the outside. No one can find any fault with you. But inside, your hearts are depraved. They're polluted. They're corrupt. He says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside as well? Jesus is telling the Pharisee and he's telling us, Externals are not sufficient because the one who made the externals also made the internals. And this man was focused on the externals. Of course, Jesus knew that about this man. And he knows that about all self-righteous people. Now, here's the question. Does he stand alone? Is this man an anomaly in history? Is he a rarity? Okay, we, this week we've been hearing about this... Uh, this football player in, in Miami uh, who, who kind of bullied uh, this 320-pound football player, if, if that's possible. Um, 
Incognito, I think is his name. And to be, to be fair, I, I've never seen bullying in a, in a locker room. It just doesn't seem to fit. I, I believe this man is an anomaly. I really do. I, I, I just never saw it. I never saw the hazing that they're having here in the Miami locker room. He was an anomaly. But here's the question. Was this man an anomaly? Is this a rare thing that people actually believe that in the end, God's going to be really impressed with you? I don't think it's rare at all. There are many people, in fact, I would say most people in history, and perhaps there are some here today, who don't have the foggiest notion about the spiritual nature of God's law. And hence, you don't have the foggiest notion about your own sin. Each commandment covers a wide range of behavior. For instance, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you've ever been angry at someone without cause, you've murdered them in your heart. What does that mean? If Jesus is being honest, and I think he is because he is the truth, that means we're all murderers. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you looked on another person with lust in your heart, you committed adultery in your heart. What is he saying? He's saying that we're all adulterers. We've been through two commandments and we've already established the fact that we're all murdering adulterers. In other words, Jesus says the law applies not just to the externals, it applies to the heart. And this man did not recognize this. Most people see the Ten Commandments as a short list of really bad sins that we don't typically commit. And that's not the Ten Commandments. And they don't see that God requires truth in the inner being. Psalm 51 verse 6. David wrote that psalm, in fact, after he committed adultery and, and had a man killed. It's a song of, of confession and repentance. Well, he recognizes God. You look upon the heart. You demand truth in the inner being. They don't recognize that God requires perfection. Jesus said that. In fact, I love the, the liberals say that they prefer Jesus' teachings to Paul's. And I want to say, have you read Jesus' teachings? Have you read Matthew 5.48? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what he said in the famous Sermon on the Mount. That is God's standard. Perfection. Perfect fidelity to the law of God. Which is the very revelation of the character of God. So do you really think in light of that standard that God's going to be impressed with your church attendance? Do you think he's going to be impressed with a preacher who preaches twice per week? He's not impressed at all. But this man was obviously impressed with his own behavior. And so the second stage of Jesus' answer 
is intended to expose the problem of his heart. In other words, Jesus, he's not disputing this man's claim to perfection. But he's going to give him a test. It's going to be a penetrating test. If the rich young ruler is really a law keeper, that includes keeping the first commandment, which is, thou shall have no other gods before me. Look with me in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have And distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now the irony of this demand is very clear. When you consider in light of the previous paragraph. Infants are being brought to Jesus. And Jesus says don't forbid them. Because such is the kingdom of God. Infants have nothing. Okay. But need. And dependency. And desperation. They have nothing. And Jesus says they lack nothing in order to enter the kingdom. This man has everything. He's rich. And yet he lacks something that keeps him from entering the kingdom of God. So what is this one thing? It actually sounds like three things. He says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Sounds like three things, but actually, it's one thing. Jesus is saying to him, the one thing you lack is me. Stop treasuring your money. Stop treasuring your idols And treasure me. That's what he's telling the man. You want heaven? You want eternal life? I am the treasure of heaven. I am the treasure of eternal life. So if you treasure something now over me, you won't enter into eternal life because I'm the treasure of eternal life. Nor would you enjoy eternal life if you treasure something now more than me. Now, let's make sure we understand. Jesus does not call every single person to give everything away. That is a bad interpretation. In fact, if we did that, there would be no resources for the Great Commission. And we are called biblically to take care of our families. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, there are really many rich people in the scriptures that God does not call to give everything away. The issue is that you cannot come to Jesus as king holding on to your idols. That's what he's exposing with the man. You cannot come to him as king and as savior and have something in your life that you love more than him. That's called an idol. That's called a false god. Now the question is, how does this man respond? The way he responds 
is like most do. Look with me in verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich young ruler passes the eye test on all accounts. He's moral, he's religious, he's sincere, he's reverent, he has a respect for Jesus. In other words, he's like every single person represented in this room, perhaps. He passes the eye test. But there's one thing wrong with the man. He's a self-righteous idolater. That's what's wrong with the man. He is a self-righteous idolater. He loves himself and he loves the created order more than he loves the creator. That is spiritual embezzlement. You say, well, think about it this way. You're married and you find out your spouse confesses to you. There is someone I love more than you. Now your spouse passes the eye test. Your spouse is the, uh, the ideal spouse. Your spouse serves you. Your spouse takes care of you and provides or perhaps protects. Your spouse brings a lot to your relationship. But your spouse loves someone more than you. You get the picture. This man would probably be the head, the chairman of the deacon council. He would be the chairman of the trustees. He may even be the pastor of the church. This man pasted the, the, the test. But he was, a, he was a man who had unmediated love. What is unmediated love? Jesus is the mediator. And when you love something... Not through Christ and for Christ. That is an idol. Okay? Christ is the mediator for everything. He is the, crea- he is the mediator of our salvation. He's to be the mediator of all of our pleasures and treasures. And so when you love something. Not for Christ's sake and through Christ. That is unmediated love. That's idolatry. He wanted salvation on his terms as a result. Not Jesus' terms. But when you come to a king, you don't come to a king on your terms. You come to the king on his terms. Jesus is telling this man, if you want him as savior, you have to renounce all these other things that you're looking to as savior. For instance, if you're looking to Something to bring identity and fulfillment and pleasure and contentment and satisfaction in your heart. That's not Jesus. Those are false saviors. They're parodies of the true Savior. Jesus said, if you're going to come to me as Savior, you have to renounce these things. And for this man, it was money. And the fact is, all of us have that something. What are you looking to as your salvation? 
Even the atheist looks to something for salvation. Now, they don't think in terms of salvation from sin. But something to bring significance to your life. Something that is your ultimate treasure. Something that has captured your affections. You just do an analysis of where you spend your time. Where you spend your money. Where your heart is really set upon. That's your God. That's your Savior. And Jesus says, if it's not me, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling this man that. Now, our idols are not always money. In fact, money can be spiritually beneficial. There are some people who are extraordinarily wealthy and love the Lord Jesus Christ above everything. Okay? In fact, money can be spiritually beneficial to those people because they, more than anyone else, recognize the vanity of money. That's why money is not their savior. That's why money is not their end. Jesus is their savior. Jesus is their end. And money can also be spiritually beneficial because when you give sacrificially to the Great Commission, it grows you. It matures you in your love for God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But having said that, money is often one of the most common saviors. Our ability to go to choice restaurants and have the nice things, okay? And go to those those, uh, desired vacation spots. Just to have security and knowing the bills are covered for the month. All of these things are probably more important in our churches than we're aware of and realize. How do we know when money isn't just money to us? How do we know when money is not just a tool and a servant and not master? Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, is helpful here. These are symptoms... These are signs that money is more than just a tool for you. First of all, if you do not have the ability that is morally and volitionally to give large amounts away sacrificially, or you don't give regularly, sacrificially to the Great Commission, to the Kingdom of God, That's a sign that money is more than just a tool for you. A second sign, he says, is when you get scared and anxious and depressed when you don't have the money in your account that you're accustomed to having. That's a sign that money is more than just a tool for you. Thirdly, When you look at others who are prospering more than you. And you know you've worked harder. You know you're a better person than that person. But you're eat up with jealousy and discontentment in your heart. That's a sign that money is more than just a tool for you. At this point, you already have one foot in a trap. Your money is no longer just a tool It's a scorecard. It's a scorecard by which you grade 
your success and place in life. In other words, it's your God. That's a dangerous place. Think about it. This man came with the right posture. Mark tells us he came and bowed down to Jesus. He came to the right person. He came to the Lord of the universe. He came asking the right questions about eternity. He wasn't talking about the football game last night. He was talking about ultimate reality. He wanted to know about eternal life. And he got the right answer. And yet, because something was controlling his heart, he could not bow his heart to the Lord Jesus, even as his outward body was bowed to him. He couldn't get up self-control. You know, for a long time, that's what kept C.S. Lewis from committing his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not want to give up lordship over his life. And most don't. Lewis writes that uh, when he began looking into the demands of Jesus, here's what he says, there was no region even in the innermost depth of one's soul which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. He recognized that. When Jesus calls you to die, he's saying there's no area of your life that you, that you can keep for yourself. And that bothered C.S. Lewis. And that's what I wanted, he writes. Some area, however small, which I could say to all others, this is my business and mine alone. That's the way many people think. Question, do you have that area in your life? This is my business. He's got most of me. I'm going to keep this part for myself. Is there any sin in your life that you're holding on to? Any idol that you will not renounce? Any relationship that you won't let go of that's keeping you from following the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is the case, you are no different than the rich young ruler. And if that is the case, it's utterly tragic. Now, why is it tragic? Because we know anything that makes the prince of peace and the prince of joy sad is not going to end well. And this response by this man made Jesus sad. Because he knows this man's ultimate destination. If he does not repent. Notice in verse 24. Jesus seeing that he, that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth. To enter the kingdom of God. Mark's account tells us that he loved the man. He loved. In a sense of. He, he's grieving over this man. In agape love. Because this man. Could not renounce. His idol. How difficult is those who have wealth. To enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel, which is the largest animal in the Near East, 
to go through the eye of a needle. You say, that's not possible. That's the point. Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now think about it. Jesus is loving this man. There is a sadness in Jesus' heart because of this man's refusal to renounce his idols. Jesus at this point is also young. He's in his early 30s. Okay? He's also rich. Hebrews 1-2 tells us he's the heir of all things. So he looks at this rich young ruler and he identifies with him. He identifies with this man. Jesus too is a rich young man. Jesus too is a rich young ruler. I almost titled this sermon, One Rich Young Ruler Meets Another Rich Young Ruler. And Jesus also knows that he is just weeks out from the cross. He's weeks out from taking the judgment for people who love their idols more than they love God. And he knows that he's just weeks out from going to a poverty much deeper than this man would ever experience. He was going to a poverty much deeper than he was calling this man to. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor so that he, through his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus was going to give everything away. Why? For sinners like like this rich young ruler and for sinners like us. And now he was calling this man to give his idol away to follow him. Jesus wasn't asking this man to do anything that he wasn't doing himself. And when we understand that Jesus is the true rich young ruler, it's going to change our attitude towards our wealth, our material possessions... It's going to change our attitudes towards every created thing in this order, this created order, that we might be those who perhaps have the tendency to gravitate to and treasure and hope in too much. Now, Jesus is not saying it's a sin to be rich. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's a handicap. It's a handicap to be rich. In other words, it's a handicap to be a 21st century American living in Louisville, Kentucky. That's what he's saying. He has taught so much on riches throughout Luke. The rich young or the, the, the rich fool who built bigger barns for himself. In fact, if you look back at that, he built these bigger barns and God said to him, fool, this... Not your soul is required of you and the thing you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards the God. And then you have all that teaching in chapter 16 when we looked at the danger of riches. You cannot serve God in money was his conclusion there. The disciples have been taught this. 
And yet they still don't get it. The danger of riches. Why? Why don't the disciples understand this at this point? Bad theology. Bad theology. We see that in verse 26. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? The disciples had the typical Jewish worldview. And it's kind of like the prosperity movement we see today on television, on TBN and other channels. If you have enough faith, if God has favor on you, you will be wealthy and you will be healthy. They had this perverted understanding from certain proof texts from Deuteronomy and the Psalms and even the book of Job. And so... The idea being, if a rich man who clearly has the favor of God on his life cannot be saved, who then can be saved? That was what the disciples were asking. Again, it's not possessing riches that keep you from entering the kingdom. It's being possessed by riches or any other idol that you might have. And that brings us to the most glorious verse in the text. One of the most glorious verses in the entire Bible. Verse 27, as we close. Who can be saved? He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do you get that? It is utterly impossible... For man to save himself. This is the most hopeful verse and statement in the text. You see, this story is all about the gospel. We have to read every narrative in the gospels in light of the cross and the resurrection. It's impossible to be good enough. It's impossible to behave well enough. Or even to free your heart from idolatry. I'm not going to love money. I'm not going to love money. I'm not going to love my favorite ball team. I'm not going to love my boat. I'm not going to love golf. I'm going to stop doing these things. You cannot remove your love for your idols. What you have to do is replace them with a a greater affection. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Only God can change us. Only God can save us. And free us from these desires. And how does he do that? He does that through his son Jesus Christ. But here's the question. How does he do that? How does Jesus save us from our idols? Which is essentially breaking the first commandment. How is Jesus the path to eternal life? And it's simply this. Jesus himself is our perfection. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those under the law. Who are those under the law? Us. Why do we need redeeming? Because we're lawbreakers. Jesus came under the law, which means He came to fulfill the terms of the law. In Romans 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh that he might condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus not only fulfilled the law, he took the condemnation for those of us who were under the law and have broken the law. In other words, what will free you from your idols is fleeing to Christ as a sinful idolater in repentance and embracing Him as your law keeper. Embracing Him as the one who, as a substitute, took the wrath of God for you. And when you understand that, you have a different orientation towards your money. One of the evidences that you understand this is you begin to give sacrificially in light of what Christ has done for you. You have a new orientation toward every other idol in your life. You are now freed from the power and the dominion of these idols to follow Christ. And that's what Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. Maybe here today and you realize... I am this rich young ruler. I've played the game. Outwardly, externally, I'm not an idolater. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. But inwardly, if everyone could see in, they would know I am corrupt. My heart is set on wicked things. I need a savior. I need a redeemer. And I'm going to humble myself today and flee from my idols and embrace the Christ. You can do that today. You could do that today. I would love to talk to you about that. We could set up a meeting in my office. Maybe you are too shy about walking an aisle. I would love to talk to you. Come see me after the service. Or maybe you would like to respond today. Whatever that may be, won't you come today And embrace the Christ. Or maybe you realize that you are a true believer, but you have drifted. You've drifted from Christ as your hope. You've drifted from Christ as your identity, your pleasure, your ultimate treasure. And you want today to be the day of renewal and repentance. You can do that today. He's as close as a cry of mercy. We saw that with the tax collector. Let's pray. And ask God to deal with our hearts accordingly.